We are continuing our series that we're calling Worship Is. This is part five this morning, and we're going to clearly see in the text before us and the furnishings that we're going to see God instruct Moses to build that worship is costly, that there's a cost that is needed to be paid in order to go deeper with the Lord and worship Him. And we're all going to understand very clearly what that means before we finish our Bible study this morning. But just pray with me one more time as we approach the text this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, as as we do every single time before we come to your word, Father, we just pray that you you steady our hearts, you still our minds a little bit. Lord God, there's a lot of distractions and, and a lot of things that can kind of pull our attention one way or another. But God, I just know you have a word for your people this morning. You've had a word for me through this all week. And so God, I just pray that you would, you would speak to your people and you'd steady our hearts to be able to receive what it is that you want to teach us about yourself, what it is that you want to teach us about worship, what it is that you want to teach us or remind us about what you've done so that we can enter into fellowship and communion worshiping you. So we just ask, Father, come and anoint my lips to teach your word in a way that is faithful, honorable, accurate, and true, and anoint the ears of your precious people to be able to hear and receive what it is that you want to teach us this morning. So we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's remember just quickly where we're at this morning in Exodus chapter 27. Resetting the stage, we remember Moses is up on the mountain of God. He's up on Mount Sinai and he's meeting with the Lord. Everything that we've been reading for the past several weeks, everything in, in the, the, the this worship is series, it's all God speaking, which means this is God's plan. This is God's design. This is what God is instructing Moses to go down that mountain to instruct the people to do. And we talked earlier, we'll see it again in the text this morning, that Moses is seeing the pattern of the real. He is seeing what God wants him to see as God is showing him this heavenly tabernacle and these heavenly furnishings. Because God is going to charge Moses again, as I showed it to you on the mountain, Moses, go down there and make the pattern exactly as I showed it to you. So just remember that. Remember, this is God's heart. This is God's plan. This is God's will. It's all God's design, and it's to build the tabernacle, which is a place where God is going to manifest his presence. He will dwell amongst his people, and it will also be called a tent of meeting because God is going to invite his people into his presence to meet with him. So how beautiful is that? That's, that's amazing. That's why we're talking about worship so much because it's really all about worship. The tabernacle is the place of worship here in the Old Testament under this Old Covenant. Now, last week, March did an amazing job describing, telling us, teaching us about the intricately, incredibly ornate and beautiful structure that is the tabernacle. We talked about the actual structure last week, not just the furnishings on the inside, but the actual structure itself. And so I want you to take a look at this picture. This was a picture that I borrowed from March last week because I liked it so much. But here's the tabernacle itself. And we remember, we, we see that it's divided into two parts. There's the holy of holies and the holy place, right? And the holy of holies, that's the innermost place within this tabernacle. That is where the Ark of the Covenant is. And you can notice that's the only thing in the holy of holies, the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the two cherubim on top. That is where God will manifest his very presence above that mercy seat in between those two cherubim. So that's the the holy of of holies that we see. Now, as we come out of there a little bit, we go into the holy place, and that's where the table for the showbread and the lampstand are. We'll learn later that there's an altar of incense there, but that's just kind of showing the the tabernacle as a whole. But what I want us to know by showing you this picture is we're moving out a little further. We're kind of moving outside of the tabernacle to the outer courts, everything else that surrounds the tabernacle. So take a look at this picture. As we zoom out a little further outside the tabernacle, in the outer courts, there's really only two things. There's the the bronze altar and the bronze laver. Now we're going to talk about the bronze altar this morning, and then we're going to talk about that fence that you see around there that actually designates 
designates the outer boundary and the outer courts outside that tabernacle. Now, some of you are thinking, really? Like, all we're going to talk about is, is how to build a fence and how to have a good barbecue? Like, it sounds like a backyard project. Listen, no, we're going to talk about a lot more than that. And it is so precisely pointing to Jesus. It's so powerful as the gospel gets preached through these different furnishings, these different things that God is instructing his people to build. So tune in for this. We want to see this. This is incredible stuff in Exodus chapter 27. And it means a lot to us still today as we can see the fulfillment of Jesus through it all. So I want us to understand everything that we're talking about. The main theme in Exodus 27 is the title of our message this morning, that worship is costly. So just keep that kind of in the back of your minds. Worship is costly. Let's read what God instructs Moses to have the people build next in chapter 27, verse 1. It says, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. Remember, a cubit is the distance between the elbow and kind of the tips of our fingers, about 18 inches or about a foot and a half. So what he's saying here is going to be seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet and about four and a half feet tall. That's that's kind of getting us a a picture of what's going on. But he says, you shall, verse two, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece and you shall overlay it with bronze. Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils bronze and you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze. And on the network, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. And you shall make it hollow with boards, as it was shown you on the mountain, so they shall make it. So the next piece, God says, make an altar. And you can take a look at this picture. Here's an artist rendition of what this altar would have looked like. And just looking at the picture, you're like, I can, I can see three things. It's big, it's bronze, and it's square, right? Like that's, that's pretty much what we can do to basically describe what is going on. But I want you just to consider this. This altar, this is the biggest piece of furniture that God instructs his people to make. Think about that. It's bigger than the Ark of the Covenant. It's bigger than the table for the showbread. It's bigger than the lamps. And it'll be bigger than the altar of incense and the labor. It's the biggest piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle. Not as big as the tabernacle structure itself, but the biggest furnishing. And that, that's really important. We say, well, why? Because the biggest problem that, that prevents God's people from from entering into his presence is our sin. The biggest problem is our sin. And so the biggest furnishing is meant to deal with our biggest problem, addressing sin that separates us from God. So that's what God is establishing here in this altar. He's ready to take care of that. When he sets up worship and he's going to call people into his presence, The first thing that they're going to see as they walk in this tabernacle is what needs to be addressed so they can go deeper. That's what this altar is all about. Now, noticing a few more things before we get into greater detail here, greater depth of of what is being communicated. Notice that it's made of bronze and not gold. Every other furnishing that we've seen inside the tabernacle was beautifully, ornately designed and overlaid with gold because that speaks of purity and divinity and holiness. But this altar is made of bronze. Now, why bronze? Well, there's two main reasons. Number one, bronze is just more durable and able to withstand the heat of the fire and the flame and the coals that are going to be on this altar, underneath this altar. But the second one is bronze is a picture of judgment. 
Bronze is just a picture of judgment. And that's what this altar is really going to be used for. A place where sin is going to be judged. A place where sin is going to be atoned for. A place where sacrifice is going to be made. So the temporary covering of our sin is going to be given. Because God will receive that substitutionary atonement of an animal in place of every worshiper who's coming to make an offering. Right? That's where we're starting to get this idea of how costly worship is. Again, we're going to talk a lot more about that later, but a couple more things just to point out in this picture. Notice how there are poles, right? Because it's to be portable. They're going to make this one. They're going to carry it around wherever God is leading the people to go as they make their way to the promised land, as they eventually set up this tabernacle in the land that God is giving them. So it's portable. There's going to be rods and poles to be able to carry that. There's, it's hollow in the middle to make it lighter, able to be carried, right? God cares about that stuff, right? He doesn't want to burden us down with something so heavy. He says, I know it's going to be carried so we're going to make it hollow. I'm going to make it lighter so you can bear it. I love that about God. It's a small little detail, but I love that about the Lord. But the other thing he says, notice these horns on the four corners. And some of us think, well, what are those for, right? Why horns? Are they just to be ornamental, right? Are they just for decoration? Listen, God cares about decoration. Like he's going to go through great detail. And so, so are they just for, or are they just for decoration? Listen, maybe, maybe, I mean, I say probably not, but maybe. Are they to actually tie down the sacrifice? Or are they to tie down those animals? Again, maybe most of the time that animal animal is slain before it gets to the altar. So again, maybe, probably not, but maybe are they just to show that they're, they're reminiscent of the types of animals that are going to be sacrificed on that altar, right? Some of them have horns, there's horns. Again, maybe are they showing us the strength and salvation of the Lord? Listen, maybe, probably that's the one I like the best. David says this, Psalm 18, verse 1 and 2, David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, listen, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So I don't know, maybe it's a reach, but I like that the horn of my salvation, maybe it's David understanding that that my salvation is only gained because God accepts the sacrifice made in my place. Right, My salvation is only something that can be extended to me, not because I have a righteousness of my own, but because God extended grace and received the payment of the righteousness of another. In David's day, it was on this altar through the blood of bulls and goats. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, so maybe David's speaking of that again, maybe. I know it's, it might be a little bit of a reach. We don't really know exactly what those horns are for, but I do like that one because God is our strength. God God is our salvation and the payment had to be paid on this altar. So you wrestle some of those things out, a lot of possibilities, but definitely four horns on this altar and Moses is commanded, make it exactly as you saw it on the mountain as it is in heaven make it that way on earth and Moses he's going to this thing is going to be built and again just note that as you see that picture of the the outer courts the first thing you would see when you walked into the presence of God when you're showing up to the tent of meeting to meet with him it is this huge altar so keep that in mind we're going to go a little bit deeper in a minute but hold on to that because this only builds the point that God is wanting to make here. Verse 9, he says, you shall also make the court of the tabernacle. Here's this outer fence. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. That's 150 feet. And it's 20 pillars and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of pillars and their bands of silver. So that other side, another 150 feet. But the width along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side 
shall be 50 cubits. So it's 75 feet. It's a rectangle, 150 feet on the long sides, 75 feet on the width. 14, the hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. Listen to this, 16, for the gate of the court, there shall be 20, I'm sorry, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. Now, you can write in the margin of your Bible, next to that fine woven linen, you can write the color white, because that fine woven linen, that is going to be bleached thread, bleached white, and it's going to be made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. Now all the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits. The width, 50 cubits. The height, 5 cubits. Made of fine woven linen. There's that same phrase, bleached thread, white. We, we can see the outer fence is the color white. And it's sockets of bronze. Now all the utensils of the tabernacle for its service, all its pegs, all the pegs of the court, it shall be made of bronze. So what God is describing in verses 9 through 19 is the dimensions for the outer fence of this outer tabernacle, this, this, this outer gate, this outer court is the word I'm looking for there. But look at that picture again. That outer fence, that is what God is talking about here. Notice he makes it very clear the north and south sides are to be 150 feet The east and west sides are to be 75 feet. This is a total of about 10,000 square feet. Picture four tennis courts right next to each other. That's about the dimensions of the outer courts of the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself, the structure inside, then the laver, then the bronze altar that we're talking about. So try and get a visual of what's going on here. That, that fence on the outside, we're told it's, it's about seven and a half feet tall. And just think about that, right? That's a pretty good sized fence. And, and it's tall enough that you couldn't really see what was going on from the outside. You could see a little bit. You could see the top of the tabernacle. You could definitely see the smoke rising towards heaven from the altar, but you couldn't see enough. You could see just a little bit. And that was by design because that should draw you closer to want to see more by going inside. That's the way God works. That's the way God is always, he's trying to draw us in. When God is first starting to get a hold of our hearts, you get these glimpses, you get these tastes, you get kind of a little bit of a picture, but what it should be is a taste that just isn't enough. It's a taste that just doesn't satisfy. It whets the appetite, but it wants you to come closer. It wants you, God wants you to get closer. God wants you to draw near, but it's all for the point of going through this screen, seeing the tabernacle, seeing the altar taking place, taking care of what needs to be taking place there and going deeper. That's what God is always doing for us, trying to draw us deeper, trying to draw us to the cross, trying to draw us to the foot of the feet of Jesus, where we can be accepted by him, walk in, walk after him and follow him. But just, but just check this out. Looking at this picture, looking at everything that we see here, knowing, knowing that this is God's design, that God is speaking here, these are God's instructions. Notice something here. This is a place where God is going to dwell. This is a place where God has invited his people to come and meet with him. Christians, I want you to see this. How many entrances are in the court of the tabernacle? How many ways are there to come into the presence of God to worship him? How many gates was Moses instructed to make? Think about it. If you wanted to meet with God and come to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle where he has called you to come, how many options did you have? Listen, there's just one. Are you catching that? There's just one gate. There's just one way. There's one entrance. That's it. And notice it's on the eastern side. And notice if the whole side is 75 feet, notice it's not the whole width. 
it's only 30 feet. It's less than half of that width. Or you could say it's a narrow way. That one way, that one gate, it's a narrow way at that on the eastern side. But just think about how, how powerful that is, how this has always been a picture of God's one way, God making it simple, that there just being one way. There's, there's no other gate on any other side of this tabernacle to be able to go into the presence of God. There's just one way. And as we take a minute just to talk about this one way, the screen that covers the gate, the entrance of this one way, we're going to see that it so precisely points to Jesus. And why is that so important? Because God, Jesus is God's one way today. When you look at that picture of the tabernacle, I want you to picture Jesus and Jesus saying, I am that way. I am that gate. I am that entrance. If you want to come into the presence of God today, you must come through me. And some of us think, well, that's some radical statement Jesus makes in the New Testament. We say, no, it's not. That's the same statement God has always made. The same message God has always communicated right here in this tabernacle with one gate on the eastern side. But let's just point out there are some incredible Incredible connections that precisely point to Jesus so we can be sure that this is all a picture of him. Look at verse 16 again. It's talking about the screen that is 20 cubits long. That's, that's 30 feet wide for us. But this screen is to be made of four colors of threads. So check this out. It says woven of blue, purple, scarlet, and white. Remember, fine woven linen is bleached white. The color is white. But check this out. Blue stands for Jesus's heavenly origin, right? Jesus came from heaven to earth to show us the way. Jesus left his throne in heaven to descend upon this earth, to clothe himself in humanity, to walk amongst his people. But he, he tabernacled with us as God with us, right? But he has heavenly origins, right? He's not of this earth. He's of heaven. He's eternal. So blue stands for his heavenly origin. Purple stands for royalty. Kings wore purple in this day. And Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. So purple on this gate. Scarlet. It's the color of blood. It's it's reminiscent of sacrificial death. It's the price of redemption. That scarlet thread that is first shown to us in the book of Genesis and runs all the way through to the book of Revelation, the entirety of the Bible. It speaks of the sacrificial death, the price that was paid for redemption. Scarlet, red, like blood. And then we see white, this fine woven linen. It's white, which stands for righteousness and holiness. Which it too, it speaks of Jesus who had no sin, no spot, no stain, no blemish, no imperfections. But fully kept the entire law of God. The law that he spoke into motion. He keeps it entirely doesn't become like Adam, our father, and and sin against the commandment of the Lord. But he is the second Adam. He doesn't corrupt his 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 calling, his purpose, his sacrifice. What he's going to lay down. But he's he's holy. He's righteous. That's what it speaks of. But all these colors together on this screen, the one and only gate entering into God's presence: blue, purple, scarlet, and white. You could say it this way, pointing to Jesus. Heaven's royal blood purchases righteousness. That gate tells us, preaches the gospel to us. Heaven's royal blood purchases righteousness. Every single person who's ever entered into the tabernacle at any time walked through a gate that was symbolic of Jesus saying heaven's royal blood purchases righteousness. Because that was always going to be God's plan. This is a picture, an earthly picture compared to a heavenly reality. Read the book of Hebrews. We'll reference some verses later, but it's showing us exactly this. This is what God was going to do to bring his people into his presence. It was always pointing to Jesus. 
Jesus finished the work, and we're going to talk about that more. But that's just the beginning of what we're seeing here in Exodus 27 that's, that shows us the connections to Jesus. But let's, let's point out some more. Notice this door, this 30-foot door. Notice in, in verse 16 that we're told it's to have four pillars, four sockets, right? The, the very structure that's keeping this door open, that's allowing this gate to be the gate, it's four pillars. And that speaks to us of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four gospels that would testify to us, that do testify to us, the way of salvation, Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension, all shown to us in those four pillars, the foundational stones for our faith, that which testifies to us, that gate is still open. All those who come to Jesus, all those who enter in through him, we can still go through that gate. It's still open, but it's not going to be open forever. There is a time where Jesus will come again and that gate will close. Remember the wedding banquet. There comes a time where the door is closed. The invitations went out. You accepted them and came or you didn't. But right now, that's, this gate is open. If, if you're hearing this and you don't know Jesus, that gate is open. That invitation is to you. Come, come and be a part of the wedding banquet. Come to Jesus and accept his sacrifice on your behalf. Come is still the message today. But the, that door, four pillars, the four gospels. This gate, this one and only entrance, notice that it's on the east side of the tabernacle. When, whenever this tabernacle is moved and set up again, God wants his people to know this door always points east. You're going to need to find out where the sun rises. You're going to need to work this out because the north side is always the north side. The south side is always the south side. West and east is always the way this tabernacle is to be positioned. So the gate points to the east where the sun rises. But I put the verses in your study guide when the children of Israel set the tabernacle up and they set all of their camps around the tabernacle and they camp in their tribes. We want to know, well, which tribe camps in front of the east gate, in front of the only gate on the east side? And you'll see from the verses in your study guide that the tribe of Judah camps on the east side, which means just think about this. If you're trying to make your way in, I'm I'm coming to the tabernacle. I want to meet with God. Listen, you have to go through the tribe of Judah to get into that gate. And which tribe represents Jesus's lineage? What, which tribe did he choose to come and clothe himself in humanity to be born into? The tribe of Judah. He is the lion of Judah. So it's, again, it's pointing to Jesus here. And if all of that wasn't enough, that's enough for me, but if all that wasn't enough, here's the clincher. Jesus, we know, is our forerunner. Jesus, we know, is our high priest. Jesus, we know, is the Lamb of God who has the power to take away the sins of the world. So what Jesus is going to do, living a perfect life, living a sinless life, keeping the law of God perfectly, it was also he can walk up to this tabernacle, pull that screen aside, see that altar, understand the cost that is associated with leading people any further. You want to go any deeper into this tabernacle, something has to be paid right there on that altar. Jesus understands that there is a cost. The cost is righteous blood and he pays it. All of this is setting up what Jesus is going to do for us, laying down his life on a cross, the altar for us. That's what is being pictured here. This altar, as we'll talk about, with the animals being offered upon it, satisfying the righteous requirement of God and satisfying his wrath because those animals pay the price. Jesus is going to do that for us. It's all this picture pointing to what Jesus can do, and it teaches us all something very, very important that we never want to forget. Worship is costly. Worship is costly. To come into the presence of God at all, a great price has to be paid. And for us, Jesus paid it. For us, Jesus went to a cross laying down his life to satisfy that payment that was required for it. Think about it like this. God, he requires righteous blood. That's what he requires. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And it's not just any blood, it's righteous blood. 
So in order to have peace with God, God requires a currency that we can't even pay if we wanted to. Because we don't have righteous blood. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To break one commandment, we're guilty of breaking them all. To break one commandment means we're sinners. We're less than perfect. We're unrighteous. So the currency that God requires so I can be accepted in his presence, I don't even have the currency to pay it. I don't have it. But that was the point. Because it was to show me the reality of that, that I need a substitutionary atonement. I need something or someone to take my place. And we have Jesus. But this was all pointing to that very truth and reality. But that's what's going on here. For us today, we get to follow Jesus into the presence of God. Because he's our high priest. He laid his life down on a cross. He spilled his blood. And he who knew no sin became sin for us so that when we put our faith in Jesus, we can become the righteousness of God in him. He takes his righteousness, the, the, what he earned, and he deposited it in our account, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because he gave it in accordance to his grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. But that's this whole picture. That is what is happening here. That's the shadow of what is to come. I wanted to talk about this first for you and I, so we know as Christians, this is done. This is done for us in Jesus. But as we go back to Exodus 27 here, it's not yet done for them. This is just a picture and a shadow, a roadmap, if you will, all pointing to Jesus. But what would happen for them, for these people here in the book of Exodus, when they show up to this tabernacle, they go in through the eastern gate, they pass through the tribe of Judah, all all these things that should have pointed them and said, that's Jesus, right? But eventually they show up and the first thing they see is this brazen altar. And what was unmistakable is I can't go any further until I address what this altar is signifying. My sin has to be dealt with or I can't go in and have fellowship with God. The price for my sin has to be paid because worship is costly or I can't go in and be found in the courts of the Lord at all. So think about that. The reality is every single person will come face to face with the reality that our sin is the problem and only Jesus is the remedy. But that's what this was all about. If you want to say, I don't, I don't have a problem, I can just, you can't get past the brazen altar. You can't come before the Lord empty-handed, we're going to see here. But that's what, that's what is happening, that's what this picture is all about. So speaking here in the book of Exodus, what these people were going to experience under this old covenant is at least three times a year, I mean at a minimum three times a year, they would be called by God to come here and worship God at this tabernacle. And one of those days was the day of atonement, Passover, where they're going to show up with an offering. And that offering is going to take their place on that altar. And the priest is going to take that blood and take it into the Holy of Holies and is going to sprinkle that blood upon that mercy seat. But when you think about this picture, just just think about this. God says you can't come here empty-handed. You can't show up to this place and not be willing to make atonement for your sin. Why? Again, worship is costly. It's a point that's being made. So what you would have to do is you'd bring a lamb or a goat, or if you couldn't afford those things, you'd bring some turtle doves or some pigeons. Those things were permissible for God so that something can be offered. But in most cases, you raise that animal yourself. That lamb, that's that's your lamb. That goat, that's your goat. You raised this. You were there when it was born. And you'd be bringing that into the tabernacle. You'd bring that to the altar. You, the owner of that animal, you would put your hand on the head of that animal. And then you would take a blade underneath its neck and you would end its life. You would feel it breathe its last. You would experience that. And from then, that point, the priest would take it from there, would collect some of that blood, would sprinkle it upon that altar, would put that animal on the altar, the same altar that we're talking about, to make substitutionary atonement for your sin. That's what God is is communicating here. Now, some of us, we we may be thinking about this, that that that's kind of sad for the animals. Like, what a bummer, right? My my animal, that my, my pet... Right? But listen, everybody knew that was the price for my sin. And everybody knew, I'm glad that God is accepting that animal on that altar instead of me. 
And it turns this not from a sad day, but to a glad day as the people are rejoicing what God established as a payment, a remedy for their sin so they can worship and be in his presence. So they can maintain this covenant relationship with him because they have failed to keep his law that they promised they would keep. Right? And so have we. We need Jesus. But that's what God is setting up here. And it's beautiful. But I just want us to see there's, there's no mistaking the price for our sin. There's no mistaking the cost that is going to be accrued. When we hear that saying, the, wage, <clears throat> the wages of sin is death. Right? We kind of say, we're like, we kind of understand that theologically. But they got it practically. The price my sin accrues, the price my sin owes, it's, it's a life. Which means I show up with an animal, it's a life for a life. The price for my forgiveness is a life, an innocent animal without spot or blemish offered before God. That's the price for my forgiveness. That's the price for my acceptance and, and ability to go worship the Lord. Nobody in this day thought or believed for a second that they could just whitewash away the consequences of their sin. We live in a culture where we think, wow, that's no big deal because I didn't get caught. Oh, it doesn't matter. Everybody's doing it. Oh, the, the culture says it's okay. We try to whitewash the consequences of our sin. But listen, God knows they can't ever be whitewashed. They have to be blood washed. And if they're not blood washed, they will not be forgiven. And if there's one sin in our lives that has not been covered by the blood of Jesus, then we are not saved. We're not saved. We have to be forgiven by the righteous blood of Jesus, just like these people had to bring an offering to pay the price that God established in order to satisfy his righteous requirement of sin, his his just wrath against sinful disobedience. So that's the plan. That's what's taking place at this altar. And the people would come again and again, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, making sacrifices on this altar for the forgiveness of sin. It's hard for me to even fathom how many sacrifices were played out on this altar. Just just think about that day of atonement just again and again and again for at this point, two and a half million people. Or think about how we're told in other places that every single day <clears throat> there's two sacrifices made, one in the morning, one at night. Every day this altar would have experienced so much sacrifice, so many sin offerings, and those are just on kind of the high holy days. You could come here and make a peace offering at any time. You could come here and and make a sin offering at any time. This altar was always in use, but just think about that again and again and again and again. A sacrificial animal dies for the forgiveness of sin. A sacrificial animal dies to offer this person acceptance before God. A sacrificial animal dies because I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I need to come to the horns of that altar and be saved. Again, this pattern, this picture again and again and again, a scene that is all pointing to Jesus, all pointing to a full and final forever sacrifice who will satisfy this and do what the continual repetition of the blood of bulls and goats could not. It was all pointing to Jesus. And while this for us, as we talk about this, it is heavy and it is challenging, but I want us to know it's not, it's not supposed to be dreary. As we think in our cultural mindset and our love for animals, we, we think, oh, this, this was a difficult thing. Listen, the people in this day, they understood the cost and they loved being in the presence of God more. They would rather be in the courts of the Lord, these courts that we're talking about, than any other place because worship is costly, but once the price is paid, worship is is praiseworthy. Worship is a time of rejoicing. They loved being here as close as they could to the presence of God, and then it was a time of rejoicing. Look at some of these verses or listen to some of these verses. This is speaking of, of God bringing his people coming to the altar so they could worship him. Psalm 84, 2 says, My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my soul cry out for the living God. So think about it. In this moment, they're not thinking about, oh, I'm so bummed that I'm going to have to offer my animal here. They're saying, I am so glad my heart and soul longs to cry out to the Lord. And I'm willing to pay this price because that's what it takes so I can be in God's presence. Psalm 84.10 says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper 
forever in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Again, these courts, I would rather be here than a thousand other days elsewhere. Because once that animal has is, is, is been offered, now I'm accepted before God. And again, for all these, the people outside of Levitical priests, and, and not all of them were able to serve inside the tabernacle, most people, the outer courts, that was as close as they could ever get. As close as they could get to the presence of God. They said, I'd rather be here than a thousand other places elsewhere. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. And I love that. It gives us a picture. You walk through the gate with thanksgiving, knowing that God has set up a system, had us built an altar so that this animal can take my place. I am thankful that God has set up a way to show mercy and grace. But then after you deal with what needs to be dealt with at the altar, he says, now enter into his courts with praise. You come thankful. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. You recognize the the cost of worship and now you get to praise him. You get to worship him. You get to be in his courts rejoicing, being near to his presence. And so the people would come and, and be accepted, forgiven, brought near, and they would want to stay in the court of the Lord all day, as long as they could. Time of rejoicing and praise. So this is just some of these things that I want us to understand. But there, there's another aspect as we maybe take this from another angle. There was another aspect that, that this was supposed to build in people's hearts. This idea that this repetition was to bring people's longing to say, wouldn't it be great if there was a perfect sacrifice? Wouldn't it be great if all this repetition could just be satisfied because one person, one sacrifice would satisfy these requirements of God forever? That the blood of bulls and goats and doves and pigeons wouldn't be needed to be repeated again and again and again, but one sacrifice that could take away sin forever. That'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? And that again points to Jesus. Jesus is that perfect sacrifice that this whole sacrificial system was pointing to all along. That's the scarlet thread that was pointing to what Jesus was going to accomplish all along. It's just a shadow pointing to Jesus. So listen to what the author to the Hebrews says. It's a little bit long, but catch this. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28, says this. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Meaning he didn't go into this earthly tabernacle that we're talking about here, but he says he went into the holy place, not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. But this is just the author to the Hebrews in the New Testament, just taking a sacrificial system and saying, do you remember what all this was about? Everything we're talking about in the book of Exodus, do you remember? It was all pointing to what Jesus was going to do. It was all pointing to what Jesus has done. He is the perfect final forever sacrifice. One time, it's so perfect, it's so final, it's so forever, he only had to offer himself one time. Jesus will never go to the cross again. He will never have to lay down his life again. It's perfect. It's finished, Jesus would say. But he says he does this for the sins of many, to bear the sins of many, which would mean whoever would come to Jesus, whoever would allow him to be their altar, whoever would allow him to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, whoever would allow him to be Savior, Redeemer, our righteousness, then it is as if he carried our sins to that altar He satisfied them by his righteous blood. We have been made clean. We're now acceptable before God. We're able to come into his presence following Jesus, our high priest. That's the the big clincher of what is happening here, what is taking place. So we we say this kind of quickly now. Worship is costly. 
But I hope you understand that it's the only thing that ever costs God anything. God was able to create this entire world, the stars, the sun, the moon, all of these beautiful rivers, lakes, streams, mountains, oceans, beautiful stuff, set the boundaries, set the foundations for the earth. He spoke it into existence. You and I were able to live and breathe and move and have our being. And it says he just breathes life in us. But to redeem us, Jesus took on flesh, walked amongst his creation, chose obedience even to the point of death on a cross, despised the shame, endured the pain, died on a cross, and rose again. He gave everything. He paid everything so he could offer redemption to us. Worship is costly, and Jesus paid it all. So understand that when we worship, it's with the mindset of, thank you, Jesus. You are worthy of my worship. You're the only one who's worthy of my worship, and I want to freely give it to you because I love you, and I enter into the gates with thanksgiving and a mouth full, a heart full of praise. So two more verses, and then we'll close out the chapter and our study this morning. Verse 20 says this, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but but when I read this, when I've been reading this all week, I've been scratching my head because I'm kind of like, what's going on here? It's it's almost as if Moses was like, oh, I know, I remember the Lord told me this whole part about tending the lampstand, and it actually was supposed to go kind of in, in Exodus 24, but oops, I missed it. I better just throw it in here. It kind of seems like that. It kind of seems like it's out of place here. But listen, that's not what happened. That's not how God works, right? God doesn't make mistakes. It's not like they're they're guessing to jumble the order of the way the scripture is supposed to go. What we're seeing here and these comments, this command about tending the lampstand, it's exactly where God wants it to be. And it is perfect with the thread that we're trying to pull through here about worship being costly. Because look at what God commands. He says, tell the children of Israel, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. So he says, you tell the children of Israel to bring oil. And he says, pure oil. And he specifically says, pressed, not crushed. The oil was supposed to be gently pressed out of the olives. You're not to crush the olives and pollute the oil with the fragments of the pits that would be broken when you crushed it. He says, just lightly press it. I want the purest oil, the oil that that comes off first, the oil that's going to burn brightly, the oil that's going to burn with less smoke. And he says, why, why are we to do this? He says, so we can use it to, lamp, to light the lamp in the holy place and so it can burn continually. Remember, the lamp is the only source of light. Outside of God himself, when he manifests his presence, the lampstand is the only source of light inside that holy place. That lamp is the only thing that's giving light to those priests who are daily doing doing priestly duties inside that holy place. And so think about what God is saying. This is so powerful. God is saying, I want you to tell the people that they should motel six me, right? They should leave a light on for me inside this tabernacle. And he gives them the command, bring oil so that the only light source would be able to burn continually from evening to morning, a statute forever for all their generations. Now, this has been mesmerizing to me all week because while it seems like it comes out of nowhere, this has not come out of nowhere. This follows through with this idea that worship is costly. But let's understand what isn't being said here. When God is commanding to bring them oil, do not think that it's not as if God could produce light any other way. Right? We've already seen this God, the one true God, the Lord God of heaven and earth, we've already seen him in the book of Exodus manifest himself in the burning 
burning bush, right? And, and you know what, you know what fire does? It produces light, right? So he's able to manifest his presence in a burning bush. He's burning, but yet not consuming the bush that he burns, which means he doesn't need this oil to produce light. We're going to see later in the book of Exodus that, that Moses is going to ask God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory, God. And God's going to say, well, you better hide in this cleft and I'm going to let my glory pass by after I pass by and it's safe for you to turn and look, then you can look. Right? He's not even going to see the fullness of God's glory, just, the, just God's glory after it passed by. Remember what happened to Moses? His face was so illuminated, he had to put a veil over it. Right? He just got to see the off-shining of the Shekinah glory of God and it was so radiantly beautiful, it lit up his face. Point, God doesn't need oil to produce light. We'll see in another place later in the book of Revelation that after all things are over and all things have been made new and there's a new heaven and a new earth, we're told there's no more sun, there's no more moon, there's no more stars because the glory of God illuminates the place. The lamb is its light. Again, point, God doesn't need oil to produce light. This isn't about the people sustaining God. This is about the people recognizing we need God to sustain us. This is about the people deciding, making the costly sacrifice to say, we don't ever want that light inside that tabernacle to go out. We want to serve the Lord. We want to make sure that his presence always has a place to be able to allow the priest to perform the duties that he prescribed that they do so we can stay in covenant relationship with him so we can make the necessary sacrifices, pay the cost that is required to worship him in the truth that he's called us to do. That's what this is about. And to me, that is incredibly beautiful and it's something that we can pull out two very important applications as we close. Two important applications that connect this oil, this situation to you and I this morning. Number one, this oil speaks to us individually. When we think about our relationship with Christ, we put our faith in Jesus, we're born again, we're made spiritually alive, and then we're told that God sends his spirit, gives us his spirit, our bodies become the temple, the tabernacle of God. He dwells inside of us, the indwelling life of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, inside the temple, our bodies, that the, the Hear us, hear us Christians, right? We're the temple, that's what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3. But as we think about this, think about what this means. It, it's kind of in the same way saying, we now are to be the Motel 6 for the Lord, right? We're to leave the light on in our own lives so God can dwell, so God can illuminate, so God can speak, fill us, and use us for his good purposes. And in the same thing that we saw, we say, how do we do that? Well, we need the purest of oils. And oil in the Old Testament is so often a picture of the Holy Spirit, a picture of what God is able to give to his people by a portion of himself, the the, the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is we need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the oil of the Holy Spirit, the purest of oils. Why? So we can stay burning continually, so we can burn evening to morning, or listen, all throughout the night, all throughout the darkness, all throughout whatever would come in a 24-hour period, we can have that oil to keep the lamp of the Lord burning brightly inside of us until the time that he calls us home, comes to get us, or comes back for us, right? We need that oil to be able to, to have the strength and supply to sustain that which God has called us to be about. My single greatest, most repeated prayer request is, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with that pure oil. Fill me again and again and again. Pour yourself out to me so I can pour you out upon your people. And we can ask that. We can seek that. We can knock on the door for that. And God promises, even us being evil, we know how to give good gifts to our children. God says, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We ask and we, we, we ask, right? We ask, we seek, and we knock. Paul says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Christians, we need this. Worship is costly, and it seems like for us in America, it's becoming more costly just standing for Jesus, standing for truth, standing upon biblical truth is becoming more and more costly. We need that pure oil. 
or we're at risk of that light going out. We're at risk of that light going out in our own hearts. We're at risk of no longer being transformed by the presence of God, but conforming to this world. I don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen. And so we need that oil to light our lives, to light our path. We need to be asking for God continually, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. God will do that. God promises he will do that. Just like we're reading here, that's everything we want to be. I want his light to shine in me. I want his light to shine in you. It is. And I want it to continue. So more oil, God. More power, God. More of your spirit, God. So I can have more of the fruit that is produced by your spirit, the abiding spirit that dwells inside of every single Christian. So pray that I need some pure oil every single day, every single moment of every single day so I can live a transformed life, so I can let this body be the temple where the spirit of God would so dwell in me. So that's kind of application number one. It's for the believer. It it pertains to us individually. But here's a second application that I don't want to miss either. This is also for us corporately as a church. This is also for Calvary Chapel, San Ramon Valley. This is for us. This lampstand in the holy place that God is commanding oil to be brought to. This lampstand, remember, it's a source of light, no doubt, but it's also a source of life, right? God has it designed to look like a tree, maybe even the tree of life. It's blooming and it's blossoming and it's bearing fruit, right? That's what it is. Go back and and read as God talks about the ornate design that it was supposed to have. It's supposed to give the source of life and it's supposed to be a source of life for his people. Now, Jesus, when he writes in the book of Revelation, letters to the seven churches in the seven letters, he says, Jesus says, I am the one who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. And he makes it very clear to us. He says, the lampstands are the churches which means that lampstand is what Jesus sees as the church, right? Whatever whatever that lampstand is, a source of light, a source of life, that's what a church is supposed to be, a source of light and a source of life. And Jesus, just like the high priests would do, they were, they're in the holy place, walking in the midst of the lampstand. Jesus says, I'm in the midst of the churches. I'm in the midst of every single church that has a lampstand that is supposed to be testifying to me. But what does he say? He says, command the people to bring the oil so this lampstand can keep burning brightly. Tell the people to bring the oil or we stand at risk of this lampstand going out. There are some churches right now that the lampstand is going out. But I want you to know that's not true of us. Calvary Chapel, San Ramon Valley, God is doing a work. And God is doing a work through through you. Because as I think about myself, I think as, as much as it depends upon me, Lord, I'm going to bring my oil, I'm going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be used of you in this capacity. But I can't do it alone. The church has never been about one person. The church is a body of believers, many members. And even in a situation, we've been virtual for over six months, not able to meet corporately on a Sunday morning for over six months. It's as if the temptation is there to neglect the lampstand. But if we do that, the very source of light and life in our midst is at risk of going out. And what the people said here is we're not going to let that happen. Now, they they will. There will be some times that the nation of Israel will neglect and this tabernacle will go dark. But for us, as this world gets more and more dark around us, this lampstand needs to start shining brighter and brighter. And that can only happen when all of us come together and offer what we have. I'm not just talking financial. I'm talking about our spiritual gifts. I'm talking about using each other as living stones to build a spiritual house. Because that's what God has always said he will do when he builds his church. So I want to encourage you. You have oil to give. You have the oil from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And there's a lot of other things that can be done that ought to be done. And we want to be faithful to do it. Worship is costly. Discipleship is costly. Following Jesus is costly. But he paid the price. He opened the door for us to follow him. And since he paid the price for me, I want to be willing to pay the price for him. I want to follow Jesus. I want to imitate Jesus as he's, as he's showed me the roadmap. I know I'm not greater than my master. I don't want to be. I want to be like him in every way. So think about how this it pertains individually and corporately. We want God to do a great work. 
I really believe that, that we are on the precipice here as a church of God doing something even greater than we've ever experienced. But I want us to, to make sure we're not neglecting the, the simple things, the pure things, keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus, asking to be filled daily with the Holy Spirit, loving the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbor as ourselves, being willing to be put in circulation for God's use, for God's glory. Let's keep our heart fixed upon those things and let God do whatever he wants to do. But let's make sure we agree. We want to be a source of light. We want to be a source of life in this community as a church, as God has planted us. And we want ears open to say, how do you want to use me? Christians, we are the church. The church for us, it's never been more clear that it's not a building. We don't have one. It's a people. It's Christians coming together of one accord, equal passion, equal purpose for God's glory. So let's do that. Let's be a part of that and watch God do the things that he wants to do through us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, we look at this teaching this morning. We look at this text this morning. And Father, we all come to you with just an awareness of of our sinfulness, Father, at least I do. I come, I come before you as Isaiah did, and I say, Father, I'm a man of unclean lips. Father, I don't, I don't live the life like I should always live the life. The, the heart is willing, the spirit is willing, God, but the flesh is weak. But as we come to a place like this, we can say, take the coal, touch my lips. Father, take your precious spirit. Take the, the blood that you shared for, for us, God, and just cleanse us inside and out. Wash us white as snow again, Lord God. You finished the work. It's your righteousness. It's done. You made that payment on an altar, on a cross for us. We have been forgiven and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So God, I just pray that 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 life would just wash over us again. Father, we're not identified by our sin anymore. We're we're the saviors. We're yours, Jesus. We are Christians. We are sons and daughters of the living God. And so I pray that that truth would just wash over us, that you paid what was owed on the altar so you can call us deeper into your presence. Father, let let that just breathe life back into us. And Father, as the call goes out, for oil. As the call goes out, we're here to answer it, but first thing, Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill your church with your Holy Spirit. Pour out your church, not only Calvary Chapel, San Ramon Valley, but God, pour out your Spirit upon your churches. Bring illumination. Trim the wick on the lampstands that are in the United States of America, that are globally all over the planet. Pour out your spirit. Bring new oil. Bring fresh oil. So this revival can continue to be fanned. So revival can break out. So God, you would do an incredible work and bring in the harvest that we believe are are ready. And Father, use us. I just pray that you'd bring us to a place where we would say, here I am, God. Use me. Do that in the individual hearts of all those people tuning in and listening, all those who are part of this church or the different churches scattered across the globe. Father, we have been bought with a price and we are here, yours to will and to do for your good pleasure. So use us, King Jesus. Here we are. We lift up our hands, we lift up our hearts, and we say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.